Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. And a very happy Easter Sunday to you today as well. I hope that you are celebrating with friends and family and fabulous food. This show is all about true culinary exploration. I bring you fresh ingredients, recipes, inspired kitchen wisdom, and more from celebrity chefs, authors, trendsetters, and culinary experts every Sunday in your radio. I'm all about delectable dishes, exquisite experiences, and living the best life. So if it's rich or savory or just downright delicious, you are going to hear about it right here. I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, and I offer daily posts of gastronomic inspiration on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. This show is for those that love to cook and love to eat, and I hope that you will become a more confident cook just from listening. And of course, spring is heating up. I'm sort of hooked on the fact that it's spring, especially seeing that it's Easter Sunday, so spring has arrived. And lamb is a delicious sign of spring, don't you think? From roasts and chops to comforting braises, lamb has something to offer everyone at the table. Maybe it's shining on your Easter table today. It showed very well, by the way, at our Passover dinner on Friday night. And it lends itself really well to grilling too, which makes me excited for summer, which will be here before we know it. So I thought that I would kick off today's show with a refresher course on lamb and explore all the preparations that make this meat shine. Now, we all know Americans love beef, right? We eat statistically roughly 54 pounds per person per year. And that is a staggering number when you compare it to the amount of lamb we eat every year, which clocks in at about a half a pound. That is just one oversized serving per person per year of lamb. And since beef prices are on the rise right now, I think it's the perfect time to fall in love with lamb again. So I thought I would give you my best tips and tricks and professional chef advice when it comes to choosing the right lamb and cooking that lamb brilliantly. So whether you're serving a crowd or putting together a simple dinner for two, you can always lean on your butcher to help select the best cut for the appropriate occasion. But keep these lamb cuts in mind. There is, of course, the tender and iconic leg of lamb, which you can purchase in several iterations, full leg, the shank, uh, the end, or the sirloin end. And a bone-in leg of lamb is my first choice. I love the flavor that the bone imparts, but it does take longer to cook. You can buy a boneless leg of lamb, which is usually tied with twine, um, and it cooks up beautifully as well. And if you buy a whole leg of lamb, it's usually approximately six pounds or so. It should feed at least eight people. Now, there's also, of course, a rack of lamb, always impressive, seven to eight chops or bones that not only can be crusted and started on top of the stove, then finished in the oven, but the traditional rack of lamb grills brilliantly, mind you. And then you can always cut the rack down to single chops or I like to do double chops and you can cook those individually as well. Now there's another kind of chop 
when it comes to lamb that I happen to love. And it's a lamb sirloin chop. And it's that tiny little T-bone steak looking cut. And it has a very generous ratio of meat to bone. They're also very wallet friendly. And lamb shoulder chops have this sort of toothsomeness that's really delicious. Now you can find lamb top round, which is cut from the larger piece of the leg, and it's great for kebabs. And then of course there's the shank. The lamb shanks are stars of the braising world, I would say. They cook low and slow and long to develop this wonderfully velvety texture. And they're individually portioned because each shank serves one person generously. And lamb shanks are a beautiful option if you don't want to break the bank. I think that braising is the best route for lamb shanks because the liquid keeps the meat from drying out. And my favorite way to braise lamb shanks is with red wine and balsamic vinegar. And they are oh so luscious. Now, when it comes to varieties of lamb, You can buy American-raised lamb or New Zealand lamb in most markets or butcher shops. Now, American lamb is a little more expensive. It's usually grass-fed, but it's grain-finished, so it leads to a mellower flavor. New Zealand lamb is smaller than American lamb and tends to be a little bit gamier. It is grass-fed. It has a a lamb-like flavor, but it's leaner than American lamb, and I like it. And then, of course, if you can find it, get your hands on it, French lamb is the most fabulous and famous because the lamb is actually fed on salt marshes and the flavor is extraordinary. It's even hard to find supposedly in France. So if you do grab some somewhere, then you should send me an email and let me know where. By the way, you can always share your best lamb recipes too by writing to me, jamie at chefjamie.com. So I recommend that you taste the spectrum of flavor profiles and see what you like. And remember that lamb loves flavor. Lamb is used in cuisines the world over. So you can really take advantage of its versatility and you can cook it in lots of different flavor styles, like in the French style. You could crust it by spreading a layer of Dijon mustard and then topping it with um, freshly chopped rosemary and thyme and basil. And then, of course, you could take it the Spanish direction and add lemon juice and garlic and smoked paprika. Or you could go Greek or Middle Eastern inspired and complement the lamb with a creamy yogurt-based sauce. And then in the Mediterranean and North African style, lamb is a constant with fruit. And I happen to love that combination. So dried fruit or even fresh fruit, like dried apricots or prunes, are a natural pairing for lamb. And then here's something I love to do. If you want to acclimate to lamb, for a lamb-infused shortcut, try substituting some ground lamb in place of the ground beef next time you make your favorite burger or meatball or meatloaf, and you'll really get a fabulous new flavor inspiration. You'll find lots of lamb recipes, by the way, at chefjamie.com, where there are a few other things you will not want to miss this week. Uh, If you are sitting down to a Bloody Mary right about now for the Easter holiday, well then, cheers to you. I think Bloody Marys are a crucial staple of brunch entertaining, and we're coming into that entertaining season. So the next time you invite friends and family over, go online to chefjamie.com and look up the best Bloody Mary bar 
ever. I have listed for you a laundry list of offerings to make your own customizable drink bar. And so I'll toast you with that. Check it out. It's under the feature entitled Think Like a Chef because it's my goal to make you the best cook you know. You'll also find this week the weekly dish, a tomato camembert and gray air tart. It tastes even better than it looks, by the way, and it's beautiful. And It would be lovely for Easter today, but it's also wonderful served uh, for Meatless Monday alongside a big, beautiful salad. You'll also find something truly sweet. My jelly bean biscotti are posted on the website. Yes, that's what you do with leftover jelly beans. And a fluffy tail cocktail, because it is not too late to float a peep in your martini today. (laughs) And if you're still continuing the Passover celebration with matzah galore and unleavened dishes, you'll find Passover macaroons that are coconut laden posted on the site. And do not touch your dial because there is so much more delicious conversation coming up in your radio. Trisha Yearwood, the music icon, and of course her husband Garth Brooks, whom she's currently on tour with, is stopping by once again. And I'm really delighted. She has that Southern hospitality gene and she's cooking a little leaner and cleaner, in fact, from her new book entitled Trisha's Table. Don't miss it. She'll be coming up next. We are canning and preserving with natural sweeteners, and we'll teach you how to put it up. And the gentleman known and loved for his creation and culmination of the South Beach Food and Wine Festival, Lee Schrager, he's stopping by, taking us on a road trip of America's best breakfasts. There's more fabulous food in just minutes right here in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Dedicated to great taste, welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. There is so much more to the much-loved Trisha Yearwood than an award-winning country music career. She is a passionate Southerner who has won the hearts of all of us Food Network fans with her cooking show, Trisha's Southern Kitchen. In her New York Times bestseller, Home Cooking with Trisha Yearwood, when you heard her on the radio last, Trisha invited you into her kitchen for a feast of flavorful meals, and she shared heartwarming personal anecdotes and a treasure trove of recipes from a lifetime of wonderful gatherings. Well, her new cookbook release is even more spectacular. It's entitled Trisha's Table, and it's written by Trisha Yearwood with her sister Beth Yearwood Bernard and a foreword by her famous and fabulous husband Garth Brooks. You're going to find lighter and traditional indulgences in this book. I can't wait to make the dairy-free angel hair pasta with avocado pesto. There are over 100 new recipes and a fresh outlook on food and life and lots of Southern soulful deliciousness. And so she's here to dish. Ladies and gentlemen, I am delighted to welcome back Trisha Yearwood in your radio. Hi, Trisha. How have you been? I am great. I'm better now hearing that introduction. You make me sound so good. Well, no, you sound good on your own. You have to know that. Um, I think if you recall, I mentioned in our last interview, I have very fond memories of sitting very up close and personal at 
your fabulous husband's Vegas show where he brought you out to sing and memories that will never fade. And I bring it up because you're currently on tour once again, and I assume you're cooking on the road. Um, not too much. I mean, I, I do um, I do have to a little bit because cooking for me is really um, comforting. It's also yes. relaxing. It's yes. never, never stressful. So um, I usually will actually cook something um, and in my days off at home and then I'll bring it out and share it with the band and crew um, just to have a little something from home. We're lucky that we have really great caterers and they, um, you know, I will go to them and say, hey, you know, I love all this food, but can we also, can we get a little bit of, try to keep it a little healthy by, you know, can we always have a healthy option just in case I want to eat healthy that day. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, so it's a, it's a balance. And life is a balance. Everything is a balance. But this new cookbook definitely has a twist on healthier options, eating leaner and cleaner, because I believe in everything in moderation. But if you can eat uh, angel hair with, you have to tell me about this avocado pesto, I'm in. It's so good. I can't tell you. My, my goal has been to find things that are a little bit lighter or different, or if you're if you're lactose intolerant and you or you just want to cut dairy out or whatever that um, that still tastes amazing. I don't want you to make it and go, oh, this tastes really good for diet or for lighter. Um, this is not a diet book. It's not a, a weight loss book in any way. It's really because because even though like for instance that pesto is dairy free, it's still got calories in it. You know, it's got cashews in it. Cashews give it the fat. Um, it's got this, you know, great flavor. Avocado is such a nice, nice, uh, addition to make it creamy and avocados are not low fat. So it's not like it's a diet recipe. It's just that particular recipe leaves out dairy. So just to kind of show you different ways to do things. And I do talk a lot in the book about the 80, 20 rule, which for me is 80% of the time trying to make better choices and 20% of the time um, indulging. And sometimes it's not 80-20. You know, on the road, sometimes it's more flip-flopped and it's more 20% of the time making good choices. But like you said, it really is about balance. It really is. And I think this particular recipe, the angel hair pasta with the avocado pesto, is beautifully balanced. So you have the nuts, you have avocado, lemon juice, garlic, olive oil. You have good-for-you ingredients. And then the mouthfeel of the avocado, which gives you the the satiation of indulgence, right? And exactly. I love that it coats the angel hair so beautifully. The photos are so vibrant. It makes me want to make it right away. Like, leave the radio studio and go and make avocado pesto. Now. Yeah, you're making me think about that for dinner as well. Okay, <laughs> perfect. Then we have a plan. I love that. We have a plan now. I'm having it for dinner and so are you. And spring season makes me think of barbecue. And I, the first recipe I opened the book to was your pork, apricot, and rosemary kebabs. And those look succulently delicious. Yeah, I do love, um, I do love pairing a sweetness with a savory. And pork is a really good meat to add citrus to or to add, and um to add some sweet to it just a uh, it makes it it's 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 really a delight all those flavors together and mm. that's another thing when you're trying really hard to um to lighten things up a little bit um flavor is so important and in if you're not going to flavor with you know a lot of butter or which is a, which adds so much flavor to things um you have to figure out in in your spices and I mean, what else you're adding to the recipe? What are going to give you that burst of flavor that you're going to, if you're not going to use something else? And so um, 
that those are those that combination of flavors is really good. I love that you experiment. By the way, um, just in case you've just tuned in, you're late because Trisha Yearwood is here, <laughs> um, and we are dishing Trisha Yearwood's newest cookbook has just released. It's called Trisha's Table, and it's her feel good favorites for a balanced life. Speaking of balance and experimentation, I was so excited when I flipped through the book and got to broccoli slaw chicken. Trisha, because I too buy broccoli slaw in a bag, but I very honestly have to tell you, I have never put heat to it. I've never cooked it. Well, this was one of those things that kind of came out of working with a trainer who I have a I have a little trainer in Oklahoma who, and I say little because she's little, she has no body fat. She's a former <laughs> gymnast, you know, so she's like all muscle and uh, she's 4'11". She's a powerhouse. Okay, she and, and I, um, we cannot be friends, she and I. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I don't really like her, no. but um, yeah. <laughs> But she um, she tends to you know one of the one of the ways she maintains her health is she's that girl who makes all her meals on Sunday for the whole week and you know she and she was she was telling me about this and I was kind of like mm, she she really does like a lot of steamed broccoli a lot of like chicken a lot of just like mm-hmm. I'm like eh, I don't know if I it just doesn't sound like food is not fun for you like, right. you know and she said no I do this I, I do this uh, put this broccoli slaw on top of the chicken and saute it and I'm like I'm gonna try that and. And along and and it really was again one of those go to like this is one of the leanest things I make and the, putting that broccoli slaw and some salsa and you cover the lid on that chicken and it cooks it perfectly the chicken's tender and the flavor and you get all those vegetables in there um, I love I like broccoli but I don't tend to like big chunks of broccoli so I love the broccoli slaw because I feel like I'm getting all the good nutrients without right. a huge chunk of broccoli. Yeah, that looks so really I, good. It, it's really good. I can't wait to try it. And it does. It looks healthy and wholesome, and it's one-pot cooking. So um, so I'll be definitely trying that recipe out first. And yeah, then, and that's definitely something you can make and make like four pieces and then just refrigerate the rest and take it to work the next day or whatever. Sure. So it's, it's good leftover. That's perfect. And then if we don't tell the trainer, how many chocolate chip cookie dough balls can we eat? <laughs> Here's the good thing about the trainer. I don't know how she does it, but she would have, if she, she eats that way too. Like she'll, she does the, she probably does the ninety ten rule, but she, when she eats, when she indulges, she enjoys. I, I came up with that because I'm the girl who always just likes to eat the cookie dough. Me too. And I don't want to wait for the the cookies to cook. Mm-hmm. But my mom always said, you know, don't eat anything with raw egg in it. So it's like, okay, I've got to figure out how to do this where I just, I'll replace the raw egg and, um, and then, um, of course, dipped in chocolate. So yes. it's kind of the ultimate indulgence. But one of my, oh, that's, those are one of my favorite things. Maybe that's what I'll have for dessert after the pasta tonight. Okay, me, me too. <laughs> and by the way, the secret there, as long as it's in print and you don't mind, mind divulging it, is that you've substituted applesauce as the binder in place of the egg. Really smart. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, you can uh, look at all sorts of recipe books that tell you I love substitutions and figuring out, well, how do I do it? And you know, eggs are used for different things in different recipes. And in a cookie, it is that, that binder. So as long as you can find something that, that does that job, right? Um, you don't have to use the egg. And applesauce is really good in that, in that particular recipe. Can't wait to try them. Absolutely. The book is really wonderful. It's from the heart. Um, I think the recipes are, are modern and full of flavor. And we feel your Southern hospitality gene, that which you have um, <laughs> when cooking is an act of love. And so congratulations to you. Thank you for sharing um, so much of your life with us. She is the music superstar and best-selling cookbook author, Trisha Yearwood, bringing more family-inspired recipes 
to your table. You will find Trisha's Southern Kitchen, of course, on the Food Network, her newest album, Prize Fighter, with the heartbreaking goodbye song called I Remember You, which I love, um, available for download, of course, everywhere. And then you'll also find Trisha currently on the road on the Garth Brooks World Tour with, of course, Trisha Yearwood. And you can learn more at TrishaYearwood.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and more at Trisha Yearwood. Trisha, it's always a pleasure. I hope you'll come back on again. And um, I will toast you with a cookie dough ball tonight. <laughs> Thank you, Chef Jamie. <laughs> it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank and, you. Um, I'll be toasting you from somewhere with a cookie ball. Fabulous. I love it. I love it. I hope to have you back on again. Thank you so much. Thank you. There's more delicious conversation in your radio. Big names, grand recipes. That's what we're all about. So don't touch your dial. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio. Oh, the sweet signs of summer. As they say, put it up. Home canning is an industrious and beautiful way to savor the season and food preservation, pickling, and canning, no doubt gaining popularity again. Food in Jars is experiencing a renaissance, and at the head of the pack is Marisa McClellan, the creator and author of one of the most popular canning blogs called Food in Jars. Her debut cookbook was an instant hit, and she was heartwarmed to receive the kudos and the questions. What about canning with natural sweeteners? So she delivered with a new book entitled Naturally Sweet Food in Jars, and she is here to dish on ripe tomatoes and beans, corn, strawberries, cucumbers, beautiful summer fruit, and more, and how you can save the season. I'm so glad to have you, Marisa. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. How kind. Thank you. Okay, so after years of reducing the sugar, as I've read on your blog and in the book, right, you started to uh, lessen the sugar, you removed it entirely, you've reworked the recipes. And I would love if you would share some of the idiosyncrasies of of testing this process and going to naturally sweet as an approach? The thing that I had to really discover when I started reducing amounts of sugar and then um, replacing granulated sugar with other kinds of sweeteners was simply that sugar isn't just something that sweetens. It also acts as a preservative and it helps with set, you know, helps with the finished consistency of the preserves. So um, once I started playing with different sweeteners, I really had to learn how they were going to behave in the finished preserve once I was all done. And so it wasn't just a matter of saying, okay, well, I can take my favorite old recipe Hmm. and swap in equal amounts of honey for the sugar. Um, You know, honey is a liquid sweetener, so it changed the consistency of the jam in that way. Um, It's sweeter than sugar, so figuring out where the sweet spot, if, you know, forgive the pun, of um, (laughs) just enough 
so that it would taste good, it would keep well enough, it would get a good consistency, but not so much that you were sort of blowing your yourself up with sweetness and, right. um, you know, making it so that you didn't have to cook for hours and hours and cook out all that liquid. Mm-hmm. Um, it was definitely just a lot of trial and error. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, well, you know, it's like just there were many of the sort of experimentations went up on the blog, but not even all of them. Some things <laughs> simply I made, and they were not good, and no, they never saw the light of day. And they just <laughs> didn't work. No, I wondered about that. I mean, from a chemistry standpoint, we love the fact that we have sugar substitutes today, but you really have to understand how to work with them. They're not uh, easily substituted proportionally in every recipe. And there are some, I would expect, very particular hurdles when you're um, cooking over a long period of time, when you're canning, and when you're looking for shelf life. That was my first question when I received your book. I thought, well, this is brilliant, but how long will these jams last? Because I think of sugar and salt, the two basics in the pantry, as preservatives along with flavor enhancers. Here's the thing. So in the jar, when the jars are still sealed, you can really do a lot with very little sugar because you've sterilized the jar, you've processed it in a canning pot, so you're you know, sterilizing the product. So there's not a lot of risk of spoilage when it's sealed in the jar. The place where you really see the difference between sugar and these more natural sweeteners is once you've opened up the product. Mm. Because you know when you open up a jar of you know, highly sweetened sugar jam, that is going to last in your refrigerator for months sometimes, you know, unless your family just moves through jam at sort of a rap, you know, a highly rapid pace. But, um, you know, if you're someone who takes maybe two or three months to go through a half pint, if it's sweetened with a lot of sugar, it's going to last and still going to keep its quality. Whereas these preserves that are sweetened with honey or maple or agave, they, they do fine on the shelf, on the pantry shelf, but once you open it up and you expose that preserve to of the microorganism environment in your home, which we all live in a world of microorganisms, that's when um, you really see how these natural sweeteners don't preserve as well. We're making jams and jellies and preserves with natural sweeteners. Don't touch your dial. More food in jars right after the break. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with Marissa McClellan, the author of Naturally Sweet Food in Jars. Okay, so let's talk about the natural sweeteners. You narrowed it down, I would assume, to those that work the best for canning. Um, That happened to all be my favorites. Um, (laughs) I am a honey lover, and I love using local honey, and I talk about that a lot on the radio because they say it has tremendous health benefits. But its consistency different than a granular sugar definitely makes it often a challenge. I happen to love agave as well. It's succulently sweet to me. So you get a good big boost of flavor. And then you use um, natural fruit juice as well and coconut sugar, which I find fascinating. Coconut sugar to me is one of those really beautiful technological advances in food. Well, coconut sugar it has become one of my favorites. When I first started on this path, I, I was really wary of it, and it took me a while to figure out how to best use it and, um, 
and make the most of it. So coconut sugar doesn't come from the coconut fruit itself. It is extracted from the coconut palm trees. And so it's much like the process of extracting maple syrup. Mm. You know, you extract the liquid, the sap from the trees, and then you cook it down. So in the case of coconut sugar, they're cooking it down and down and down until it's a fully dehydrated, granulated product. Um, But it's never going to be granulated the way you see cane sugar because it's really earthy and um, it retains a lot of its natural flavor. So I always um, sort of make a joke of the fact that if you were to open up a bag of coconut sugar and have it sitting next to a bag of potting soil and you took a sniff of each, you'd think (laughs) these things have something in common. Common, right. You know, they're just, it's a very earthy flavor, sort of molassesy. And... So the, the trick to using coconut sugar, at least in my experience, has been that you really have to find flavor combinations that make the most of that earthy flavor as opposed to trying to ignore it. It's really you know, because interesting. Because in our culture, we're very used to sugar being sweet and not much else. You know, it's like granulated sugar. It's sweet, but it doesn't have a lot of flavor. And so the coconut sugar, you have to accept the fact that it's going to bring both sweetness and flavor and work with that. Okay, so strawberry cocoa jam works with coconut sugar. I'm in. That is one of the most delicious things in the book, I feel like. Um, And the reason it's a cocoa, a strawberry cocoa jam, is that I needed a flavor that would bridge the fruitiness of the berries and the earthiness of the coconut sugar. Sure, very smart. And coconut sugar is used traditionally in chocolate making. So I knew that those flavors were compatible. And so um, I tried a little cocoa powder in the first batch, and it was good, and I was like, it needs a little more. <laughs> and so that recipe has a full half cup of coconut sh- of cocoa powder in it, and it is so delicious. It's like fruity Nutella. Oh, it's it- just so good. It looks luscious. And as you uh, as you write in the book, the strawberry cocoa jam recipe begins, and I quote, this is not your average strawberry jam. It is rich <laughs> and dark, and you had me at rich and dark, and I can't wait to make it. And I love the idea of really experimenting and using coconut sugar, if that's your sugar of choice, to better your own signature canning recipes. I'd like to take a step back for a moment and talk honey because you have lots of recipes that utilize honey, one of which right at the start of the book, I also can't wait to make a mango lime butter that um, you talk about goes back to um, years ago when you traveled through Indonesia. What a glorious combination and the idea of mangoes from God uh, (laughs) savored in a jar which I don't think you seldom find that flavor profile. The trick with mangoes is that they're a, they are a little bit too low in acid to be canned on their own, which is why you don't see them a lot in canning and preserve oh. applications. And so interesting. the way you can make them safe is by employing an, an acidic ingredient. So that's why I paired them up with lime, mm. even though, I mean, really, it's such a natural combination, limes and mango. Yes. They just go beautifully together. And so that butter is so luscious and smooth and sort of creamy and you when you taste it you're almost like isn't there dairy in this it's so creamy Mm. but doesn't it's just you know honey and mango and lime and it's so good. Your knowledge is fantastic. And I really appreciate the tried and true approach and the fact that you are so dedicated to this beautiful world of preserving and keeping it alive and putting it up and allowing us to savor the season. And I congratulate you. Um, a third 
cookbook and a, a stellar one. Naturally sweet food in jars, 100 preserves made with coconut, maple, honey, and more. The author, Marisa McClellan. Don't touch your dial. There's more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Food is life, create and savor yours. Lee Schrager is here, the force behind the South Beach Wine and Food Festival, the biggest annual culinary powwow in the country, and the one that's raised more than $20 million for Florida International University's Hospitality and Tourism School. Kudos to you, Lee. The annual four-day food and wine beautiful event counts the world's top chefs and its most discerning palates among its 70,000 attendees. And while he's tasted the most luxurious foods in the world, Lee is really a meat and potatoes man at heart. And you know what? He loves breakfast and fried chicken for that matter. You remember Fried and True, his most recent book, So we have a lot in common. Well, his third cookbook release, which is Much Abuzz, is a collection of the greatest breakfast recipes from across the country, dubbed America's Best Breakfasts. And I am delighted that Lee Schrager is here to dish. Welcome back, Lee. How are you? Good to be back. (laughs) Thanks for having me on again. And I also just have to add that you know I also do the Food Network New York City Wine and Food Festival. You don't want to leave, you don't want to favor one of my festivals, I'm sure. (laughs) No, and I don't want to leave one out because I've actually attended both. And they are, I have to say, not only a, a mix of the best culinary thinkers all in one place, but the most delicious experiences to taste from really what I think is around the world, these extraordinary flavors, you have culminated what is really considered to be the best of the best when it comes to uh, food festivals, per se, uh, nationally. Well, I appreciate that, and I would like to agree with you. Well, and yes, you should. Definitely so. Um, for everyone that knows you, Lee, you are uh, a, a patriarch, and I mean that as a great compliment in the wide world of food. And I think it is extraordinary that you love food, that you've experienced the best of the best, but that you have comfort food at heart. And I wonder what you think the reason for the universal appeal of like a a big, hearty, yummy breakfast is, because it's at the heart, I think, of of so many of our palates. Well, I I think to me, breakfast, you you know, it's that memory of growing up with my brothers. It's that one meal of a day that we enjoyed together, because at nighttime, you know, one brother was always playing football, one brother was working, and, uh, you know, breakfast, we were all home together, and there's something very warm and comforting about breakfast, and it's also... So, uh, you know, of course, what can I say? It's the only meal of the day that you can wear your bathrobe and not feel guilty. <laughs> That's true. Okay, take us, if you would, um, and it, it, allow us to take a seat at your table, um, to your home in Miami, because this is a breakfast I can't imagine um, you'll ever forget. Your mother made a famous German breakfast. And my mother, well, it's my favorite recipe in the book yes. because it's German breakfast. And, of course, we were not German, nor did we ever have it for breakfast. We had it for dinner. <laughs> um, 
I, of course, now make it for breakfast, but my mom always made it for dinner. It probably, went, it probably was very inexpensive to make and went sure. a long way um, for my three brothers and my dad and I. Hmm. But it's really, I have to say, it's nothing more than a scramble. You, you render off the bacon, you add in peppers and onions, you add in some um, hash browns, scramble in eggs, and that's my mom, Marlene Traeger's German breakfast. Nice. To this day, one of my favorite dishes brings back every memory, sure. every great memory of growing up. And of course, being at home with my parents and my mom and dad, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, I was thrilled that my mom could um, teach me this recipe for the book. I had never made it before. We did, you know, shot the book a year and a half ago, and I ne- never had made German breakfast. Thought about it, talked about it, dreamed about it, and now I make it regularly. I love that you've taken us on a road trip, but the beauty of the book is that you can recreate and celebrate the nation's most honored traditions. These are America's best breakfasts from down home diners to the newest local hotspots to the iconic places that we all love. There is one meal I think we are most passionate about, uh, no matter where you're from, because it's breakfast with all the fixings. So rise and dine and do add Lee Schrager's newest cookbook release to your collection. It's called America's Best Breakfasts from Local Recipes, uh, Coast to Coast, America's Favorites. The book is available now. You can order your copy at Amazon.com. No doubt it is a satisfying collection of the best meal of the day. Congratulations to you, Lee, as always. I hope to see you in South Beach or in New York for uh, one of your extraordinary food festivals soon. It's always nice to be on. I love your show and I love how thorough you are. So nice chatting with you. Nice to talk with you as well, Lee. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of Delicious Conversation. I hope you found gastronomic inspiration and that you'll set your culinary sights higher with me every Sunday as we sit down at the table to dish. I'll leave you with my last bite. By the way, you can always find the exclusive content heard on this program at chefjamie.com. And since it's spring, if you have a snack craving, you could be making carrot chips, these crunchy little gems, just like I have been all this past week. I think I'm completely addicted. They are a healthier alternative to the traditional crunch satisfaction of a potato chip, and they're so full of inherent sweetness that I find myself eating the entire batch, which by the way, only has 79 calories. You take a couple of large carrots and you slice them thinly on the bias, toss them with a little olive oil, some sea salt, and then I either add ground cumin or smoked paprika or a little cayenne for kick. And then I lay them out in a single layer on a silpat or parchment paper lined baking sheet. And I bake them for about 20 minutes at 325 degrees until the carrots are dry and crisp. I have to tell you, they are a satiating snack and perfect as we enter spring and then, of course, welcome summer. I will post my satisfying carrot chip recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. Wish you a very happy Easter holiday. Thank you for listening and hope that you will join me next Sunday when there is more delicious conversation in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well. 